Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome back to A Freedom of Ideas. Today we're going to be talking about so-called race theory as it existed in the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries in the European rational tradition. Though, of course, you could argue that it is very much alive and well up to this day. And and I want to be clear here as I talk about, quote, unquote, race theory. I'm talking about the theories that used misreadings of science and philosophy to justify racism, as well as institutions like imperialism, slavery, and the many systematized aspects of racism and bigotry that we see in our history and, again, you might well argue, in our current society. Now, our purpose in discussing this this both foolish and dangerous class of quote-unquote thinking will be to contrast it with the equally dangerous but seemingly more beneficent mistake that Mill was making that we started talking about in our last episode. But as a reminder of what brought us to this point, let's remind ourselves of the premises of Mill's philosophy on freedom, especially as pertains to justifying when you are warranted to remove the freedom of another person. First, you can compel or restrict another person if they are going to harm someone else. Second, going by Mill's ideas here, second, you can compel or restrict another if they're a child, right? And, and their immaturity dictates that they require such restrictions and guidance. Now, this borders on being self-evident, right? A parent who allows their child to wander into traffic on the basis of respecting their freedom is indefensible by any rational standard. Perhaps we could cook up some kind of Montessori versus traditionalist debate about how exactly we can and should build some degree of free exploration into the way we raise and educate children. But in its most simple form, we're going to just let this idea sit as more or less completely uncontroversial. Which brings us to the sublime object of our disses and ire. Mill's contention that the same principle, the notion that immaturity equates to an unpreparedness for freedom, that that same principle pertains on a societal level. So, i.e., when a society is in its quote-unquote nonage, meaning when it is immature, despotism is justified in quote-unquote rearing that civilization to a point of rational self-sufficiency. And so begins our conversation on imperialism, which we have very little choice, if you'll excuse me putting it that way, which we have very little choice but to address. Mill, as we saw sort of snuck in this justification for this genocidal, enslaving institution as, a, as an almost throwaway line in an essay entitled On Liberty. Now, this is from a guy that we continue to hail, and I would say rightly, we continue to, to hail this guy most of the time as one of the most lucid thinkers on the subject of human freedom. So our central question in this conversation is to ask how that man, a thinker who could write so eloquently, so incisively on the subject of freedom, how could he so blithely have thought to justify oppression on the level of civilizations? And with that as our driving question, let us begin by winding the clock back and looking toward the origins of what, again, at the time was called quote-unquote race thinking, but which we certainly should more accurately call rationalized racism. So this race thinking or race theory, as it developed in European thinking, and by the way, when I say something like European thinking, I, I, at this point in time in our history, I'm including the thinking of folks in America and elsewhere, any one of the many places on earth, which now must identify itself as at least partially a descendant, if you will, of the European rational tradition and its overall worldview. Now, of course, the fact that so much of the globe is at least in part a descendant of European worldviews, European reason, European modes of thinking, well, that, of course, has a lot to do with imperialism as well, and we are certainly going to get into that. But for now, when I, when I talk about a European worldview and a European way of thinking, I'm actually talking about something which many, many of us, myself included, 
are raised within to some extent at this point in time in our history. So our most important goal in, in this discussion we're about to have here is to see how rationalized racism, again, this kind of race theory nonsense that we're going to talk about, how that compares to Mill's difficult contention that we started to review last time. Again, this notion that you can have societies that are so immature as a whole that they are incapable of the rational capacity needed to be free. How do we compare that contention, what I would call a kind of rational chauvinism on Mill's part, to this more blatant, more straightforward notion of straight-up racism, straight-up race theory? But again, we're going to get to kind of comparing those two things not that I think we're going to really find that one of them is better than the other, but we're going to get to sort of comparing and contrasting how those two very terrible ideas sort of compare to one another. So to give a very brief history of this way of thinking, this, this, these race theories, these racism theories, this way of thinking and its relationship to imperialism, I'm going to depend largely on Hannah Arendt, who is soon to be known as quite a friend of the show. She's going to help us understand this history. Now, as many of you are very much likely aware, there's a parallel narrative that goes into much greater depth around what we would now refer to as the, uh, the quote, invention of whiteness. This, of course, is a powerfully relevant discussion to what we're talking about here, but it is also somewhat more precisely woven into the specific American history that I actually am hoping in the future that we're going to be able to look more closely at, but which is somewhat more specific and certainly much more in depth than I really want us to go today. So again, we're going to depend on Hannah Arendt and see how she sort of couches the development of this quote unquote, uh, rational set of thinking that, that we uh, again call race theory in our history. So as we're using Arendt's somewhat more glib summation of how these ideas developed in Europe and in relation to, to imperialism, this is the history that is much closer to the thinking of someone like Mill and others like him. So these are much more closely aligned ways of thinking for this entire rational tradition, including Mill, even though Mill would not share specifically in these views. In any event, in Arendt's trilogy on totalitarianism, she talks about the history of anti-Semitism and racism and their respective roles in creating the circumstances in which a totalitarian state can arise. She writes expansively, as to say one-third of her entire trilogy on anti-Semitism, and she details that very particular European history. Now, I'm not going to get into that here, but that's another thing we're going to get into later on down the road, I certainly hope. But through this same lens of this analysis, she looks at the history of the, the sort of origins of modern racial bigotry. And I'll trace that history as Arendt explains it. Now, again, I, I really, you have to forgive me for being glib because this is, of course, a very important history and it deserves a lot more time than we're going to give it. But the, on the flip side, the history of people using reason and philosophy and science and, and sort of twisting them to the end of justifying something like racism and all of the evils and the horrors that comes along with it that's actually a huge field of study and one that we don't have time to go into. The simple fact that it is so extensive, of course, is something that ought to give us quite a bit of pause. But in any event, we're only going to dip our toes into the water here and get a very quick sense of the kind of origins and basic dynamics of this way of thinking. So to begin, take what's a comparatively simple fact of European history. If you go back 1,300 years, go back 1,500 years, really anywhere from around 476 to around 700 AD, if you go to that time period, of course, there's no such thing as France or Germany or Belgium or any of the other nation states as we would think of them today. At that time in history, as all of Europe was reshuffling itself in the wake of the sudden absence of, of Roman power, different groups of people either stayed put or moved around across the continent and between the continent and Britain and, and further eastward and further northward and what have you. Thus, when the modern nation states of, of Europe kind of look back at the people that they're comprised of, 
if they go back far enough, there's going to be just naturally, there's going to be this plurality of people, each with their own identities, each with their own, you know, histories, whether it's on a, a the level of peoples or the levels of tribes, we're going to see that each of these modern nation states is comprised of a wide variety of different groups of people. And that they've been moving around across Europe for all this time. So that there's, of course, going to be quite a bit of overlap as well. Germany is not going to consist entirely of one type of people in the year 700 that have just carried through to the modern era. Same is true, of course, of France and every other country. But what this does, it, it leads to an opportunity, quote unquote, so-called, for certain theorists. So here's a rent, quote. It is a remarkable fact that the first author who assumed the coexistence of different peoples with different origins in France was at the same time the first to elaborate definite class thinking. The Comte de Boulainvilliers, and let's pause here, this is, this is Corey again. I might be getting that wrong, uh, you know, I might be pronouncing that wrong, and I guess if this guy weren't such a schmuck, I'd take more time trying to get it right, but he is, so I'm not gonna, so... So there you go. From, from this point forward, we're simply going to refer to this dude as the Compton, and we'll just leave it at that in any event, to resume uh, Hannah Arendt's quote. The Compte, a, fresh, a French nobleman who wrote at the beginning of the 18th century and whose works were published after his death, interpreted the history of France as the history of two different nations of which the one, of Germanic origin, had conquered the older inhabitants, the Gauls, and had imposed its laws upon them, had taken their lands, and had settled down as the ruling class, the quote-unquote peerage, whose supreme rights rested upon the quote right of conquest, unquote, and the quote necessity of obedience always due to the strongest, unquote. And unquote completely, that's of course Hannah Arendt is quoting some of the comp's work, and now we're done with that quote entirely, so forgive me if that became a little convoluted. So now, in summary, we have a French nobleman looking back into history and using the military pr prowess and success of Charlemagne, or if you prefer, Carl de Grossa, as a justification for why it is his right, his meaning this nobleman, our, our Comte, to hold on to considerable power and privilege handed down to him by birth because he could trace his ancestors back to this conquering quote-unquote race, he maintains the right to his current status and class. His are a race of rulers, you see, just, just like any other nobility. And if it troubles you that, at least insofar as we've experienced him so far, we see no tangible evidence in this comp's life or in his writing of, of his personal quality of nobility. Well, if you don't see any evidence of that in who this guy actually is, that's why you've got to go, go look back, right? That's why you've got to look back a millennia or more to get the real truth of what a really high caliber fellow it is that we're dealing with here. Now, another consequence of his thinking is the idea that there are people on this planet who are born to lead to rule, and to have all of the privileges that go along with that. It's destined by what the Comte would tell us was a determination of the quote-unquote fittest in a sort of social Darwinian sense that occurred, of course, you know, centuries ago. This right, this privilege, and this dude might even tell you with a straight face, the responsibility of rule was passed down to him in his blood. Now. What the comp started would, over the next hundred years or so, it begin to take on more of what we would call this kind of cut-rate Darwinian quote-unquote science. Now, given the newness of Darwin's ideas in the latter 19th century, it became popular to justify a bad idea by parroting a silly, silly misinterpretation of Darwin. The most important thing meaning really the most impactful thing that this thinking does is it introduces the priority of a notion of quote-unquote purity into the thinking about heredity and people. The Comte's theory rests on the notion that he's the direct descendant of one of Charlemagne's people, and that for those people, they were inherently superior to the people they conquered. 
His quality is therefore in his blood. Therefore, if we keep this way of thinking, if we see that blood getting mingled with other quote-unquote weaker strands of blood, well, of course that becomes a real problem for someone like the cop. Now, as foolish as all of this sounds, this notion that quote-unquote quality, meaning the quality of our personhood, is passed along in the blood, this creates a kind of byproduct that begins to extend this thinking past just the European aristocracy. This line of quote-unquote reasoning, such as it is, goes that all white Europeans, whether they're aristocratic or not, they must at least be superior to all the other peoples in the rest of the world. Now, of course, all manner of ridiculous justifications have been used to quote-unquote prove this. Uh, one of the most popular being that because white people have been rampaging around the, wor the world, killing so many non-white, non-European people, well, that just proves how our superior civilized ways, right, our, our superiority as people and as rational thinkers. Of course, this, this is all rooted in a kind of bumbling, sadistic misreading of Darwin, but you can see, you know, baked right into the very core of this is a fundamental hypocrisy that the savagery of a people also equates to our higher being as more rational and more civilized people. So now, this new strain, this new variant in the parlance of our times, this new variant of thinking allows most Europeans regardless of whether they are originally Gallic or German or Jude or Lombard or whatever else, to begin to look across the globe and imagine that they, these white Europeans, are somehow better suited to rule and prosper in foreign lands than are the people who are indigenous to those lands. Thus, in Arendt's thinking, this mid-level nobleman tracing his roots back to a 7th century people creates a rational license. And, and really, I, I got to underline that. Let's never, never forget that all of this was marketed as the very height of rationality. So this, this whole way of thinking, this whole system of thought, quote unquote, and it pains me to even say it that way, but this whole style of rational thinking creates a justification for institutions like colonialism, imperialism, and the slavery, and the genocide, and the cultural erasure, and the uh, the countless other horrors that derive from those institutions. Now, I do think it is important here, and I'm not trying to let anybody off the hook, because all we're talking about in this show are bad ideas. I should make that clear right from the start. Very bad, very dangerous ideas. But I do think it's important to note that none of this was Mill's point of view. Mill took a fundamentally different position even though it had a basically similar bottom line. And again, I would say it's, it's arguably, Ed, Mill's point of view is arguably as bad, if not in some ways very much worse than the awfulness we just heard about, if you can believe that. But hold on and, and let's talk about it for a second here. So for proponents of race thinking, racist thinking, as we've been talking about in this show, for proponents of the idea that a person's quality is in their blood or in their genetics or in their ancestry, what have you, for these folks, there's no changing the relative status of people, right? People who they judge to be lower down the scale of human quality are not able to improve in any meaningful way. So a person like this thinking about an institution like imperialism we'll simply see it as kind of a, it's, it's just a representation of the God-given right of a white European to rage around the world doing harm and violently subduing other people because those white Europeans are inherently suited to exactly this kind of savage, quote-unquote, superiority. Now, Mill's thinking is all at once seemingly better and at the same time often more actually dangerous. For Mill, thinking as he does about the maturity of races and people, for Mill, every people can become more rational. They can become more mature. They can become more able to be free. Because this kind of progress is both possible and, and necessary in Mill's way of thinking, it means that he can then trick himself into thinking that an institution like imperialism, 
can serve as a means of helping people attain that maturity and that rationality. Imperialism becomes the kind of necessary despotism that Mill referred to. And thus, this process that just a couple minutes ago seemed like a collection of just genocide and slavery and cultural erasure, which by the way is exactly what it is, all of it done in the name of profit. Well, now we see Mill somehow convincing himself that in fact, this is something being done somehow for the benefit of the folks uh, who were subject to it. And as a consequence of being subject to it, would someday soon would become mature enough to be free and rational and all the rest of it. And somehow on the same level, level that Mill regarded himself as being on. And I want to take a moment here to remind us of one of the very first points I tried to make in this series, that these ideas we read in Mill and Locke and everyone else, whether we've ever heard them or not, these ideas are baked into our, our fundamental worldview, our entire way of thinking about the world. They're bricks in the foundation of our thinking up to this day. So even if you hear all of this and you're, as dis, as dis, you're just disgusted that Mill could have made such a terribly mis terrible mistake, and I, of course I certainly hope you are, because I am, remember, though, that many of the structures of the way you think about freedom and reason are the same structures that got passed down to us by Mill and others. Now, we may have become smart enough to reject this egregious symptom of the problem, but we have by no means even begun to grasp how extensive the real problems are in the actual structure of our worldview, the actual structure of our approach to these problems. But I digress, because we are certainly going to be coming back to this. So to once again, and somewhat glibly and snarkily summarize Mill's point of view here, his belief is that a more mature race can apply this kind of necessary despotism that we keep referring to. Well, if, and if they do that, the, the idea is that doing so will help elevate these other people who are not as mature as the conquering quote unquote race so that they will become equally capable of reason and rationality, as are, of course, these vaunted white Europeans who are running around spreading reason and rationality at gun and sword point. Now, if we have any interest in putting, a, putting very, very bad ideas on a sliding scale of which very, very bad ideas are better or worse than other very, very bad ideas, well, I think we tend to assume, it's kind of an instinct in our thinking, and maybe it's not a bad one, but we, we certainly need to keep it in check here. I think we tend to assume that a way of thinking that at least presupposes that people can be equal, well, we're inclined to think that that idea must at least be better than an idea that says that your race or your ancestry or whatever else determines that you are absolutely unchangeably of, of a less degree of quality than someone else. So the very fact that there's a potential for progress, we regard that as kind of a positive thing. And again, maybe it is, but boy, practically speaking, I don't think it worked out that way in this case. Now again, it's not much, but we need to recognize that both of these ideas, both the pure straight up sort of race theory racism idea and this ostensibly more refined notion of rational chauvinism, as I keep calling it, that Mill's kind of presenting to us, both of these ideas are terrifically horrible and terrifically destructive. But again, as I say, I do think we sort of tend to instinctively think that if anyone supposes that there is a notion of possible progress, well, that at least, that has to be a good thing, right? That, that has to be at least a little better than assuming that people are forever destined to be, have to have one people be superior and the other people be inferior. But let's remember the practical effect of that belief of Mills. And that again, I, I, I keep calling this kind of rational chauvinism and I want that idea to stick in our head so I, um, we can use that as our shorthand for this entire misconception that, that Mill's kind of working from here. If we look at the impact that that way of thinking has on the implementation of a process like imperialism, 
Well, if you imagine that necessary despotism is going to accomplish the positive goal of making a people more mature, more capable of reason, more capable of rational discussion, and thus more capable of being genuinely free, being capable of self-rule, well, if you think that way, it begins to add yet another layer to the way you conduct imperialism. It means that you not only ask these colonial bureaucrats and soldiers to rule over a subject people, we begin to ask them to try to change, to fundamentally change who those subject people are. You're no longer simply taking money, demanding obedience, and otherwise avoiding further conflict. If you believe that you can and should change who people are and fundamentally how they think, how they view the world, how they inquire, how they reason, that means that you will begin to change by whatever means how education is conducted, how religious rituals are conducted. And by the way, on that point, it's a well-known practice in many colonies for the imperialist overlords to identify and execute anyone they regarded as a religious leader in the community unless they could get that person to act on their behalf and to renounce their present faith and encourage people to take on the faith of the imperialists. This was often one of the very first things that was done in a new imperialist or colonial arrangement. So to, to put all of this as simply as I can, in the name of this ostensibly more humanitarian attitude, quote unquote, 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 I mean, just picture my more or less constantly doing bunny ears through this entire uh, episode that we're doing here, because of course, we don't want to take any of these ideas on face value. But if we call this somehow an ostensibly more humanitarian attitude, wherein all people can at least theoretically be equal and equally free, well, this, uh, you see that an entirely new class of barbarism uh, on an individual and a societal level is being introduced here. Now, again, I want to make very clear, I hope no one is mistaking me for supporting either of these viewpoints. They're both horrific, as I hope I'm making eminently clear. But understanding the difference, the differences between these two ways of thinking is actually essential to our being able to answer the next question that all of this leads us to. Actually, it's, it's necessary in answering the next couple questions. Because all of this leads us to a, a kind of twin paradoxes. One that is suggested by the work that we've done so far, and another that arises as a consequence of the first. But our, So our first paradox is a relatively obvious one. We have this dude, Mill, who is so eloquently expresses a view of freedom, while at the same time expressing and endorsing the diametric opposite of freedom. Freedom of thought and slavery by force. How could this man have made that mistake? And we have to be clear that the fundamental nature of that mistake, once again, brings us back to the subject of reason. Now, let's, let's remind ourselves of a chunk of Mill's quote here. And again, this is the, the, the quote from Mill that we've been working from, on, uh, from his essay on liberty that really points us right at this fundamental rational chauvinistic problem. Quote, Despotism is a legitimate mode of government in dealing with barbarians, provided the end be their improvement and the means justified by actually affecting that end. Liberty, as a principle, has no application to any stated things anterior to the time when mankind have become capable of being improved by free and equal discussion. Unquote. Now, if you'll agree with me on my interpretation of this notion of free and equal discussion, we see here in this, once again, that reason is the essential ingredient in all of this dynamic. Free and equal discussion. Immaturity, to Mill, equates to a lack of rational capacity, a lack of an ability to have what Mill would view as a rational, free and equal discussion that would bring people to a similar viewpoint, would allow them to determine their course, would allow them to construct their rational, free path forward. 
Now, without reason, basically, again, as individuals and as a society, you can't be free. Now, I should say that in Mill's essay, the specific references he makes to quote-unquote despots who he is sort of saying had a right to do what they were doing, he, taught, he, he uses Charlemagne as an example of one of those despots. Now, that's very different, right, than the contention that I've been making that we can relate this all to imperialism. Mill never says that imperialism is this kind of rational, necessary despotism that he's referring to in this essay. So I'm taking a, a bit of a leap, and I, want, I just want to say this to be fair and clear so it doesn't seem like I'm trying to pull a fast one here. However, oh boy, oh boy, if it, if it doesn't seem like there's a heck of a coincidence here, if Mill, again, sitting at his desk in the British East India Company, actively contributing to imperialism, imperialism that was frequently marketed as a, an institution that was going to help rise up all these, you know, savage backward societies to be more like, you know, our, our, our thoughtful, rational peak of, 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 of rational tradition, English folks and Europeans. Well, if he couldn't have seen that connection, if he made, if he made no connection between those two ideas, I would first of all be shocked. And I'd secondly say, okay, clearly there's a, a bit of cognitive dissonance at work going on with our friend, John Stuart Mill. But as I say, I don't say any of that to justify Mill. I just want to be very clear that in this essay, he doesn't spend 10 pages talking about how great the British East India Company has been for, you know, spreading freedom around the world. He's never that explicit, but I don't think the connection is really that much of a stretch. So we see that, again, in essence, the answer to our first paradox, meaning how could Mill have made this mistake of so perfectly describing freedom in so many ways, while at the same time justifying its diametric opposite, the reason he made that mistake is, well, it, it's reason. It's his belief that you have to be somewhere on a scale of one very particular kind of rational capacity, i.e. you have to be a lot like him. You have to think the way he does. You have to have rational discussions that are a lot like his. You have to worship the way he worships. You have to conduct business the way he conducts business. You have to do government the way he does government. You have to be rational the way John Stuart Mill is rational if you want to be free in what he regards as a meaningful way. So that's where, that's how we, I don't want to say resolve the paradox, but that is how we, that's, that's the dynamic that we can identify within it. But this leads us to our second paragraph that is amazingly even more threatening and uncomfortable, at least to my way of thinking. On the one hand, we see where these ideas lead. We see that this way of thinking leads directly to institutions like imperialism and the slavery and the genocide and the rape and the cultural erasure and all the other horrors that come with it. So we see where Mill's line of thinking can potentially lead us. And we surely understand that this aspect of Mill's conclusion, the notion that, again, put simply, uh, an institution like imperialism could be used for the betterment of many of the world's people, we know for a fact that this is a horrific conclusion that we cannot accept. That, and that as a consequence, we, we kind of have to be wary of any way of thinking that could potentially bring us closer to allowing an idea like that, to making an idea like that seem valid. But herein lies the paradox, right? Because what have we been saying about freedom since more or less the beginning of this season, potentially to some extent since the beginning of, of this uh, series entirely? We have time and time again come back to our three-part notion of freedom, right? Our freedom triptych. The capacity for reason leads to the ability to make real free choices, which in turn means that we can be held responsible for those choices. Reason, choice, responsibility. Take any one of those three away, and we need to, to rework our entire notion of what freedom actually is. Now, as I said before, and this is where this paradox gets very uncomfortable, certainly for me personally, and I think to, to some extent for all of us, I do agree with a version of this idea in principle. 
Now, to be very clear, the version of the idea that I agree with does not justify genocide. It does not justify pillage and bigotry and uh, slavery or any of these other awful things. The activity of reasoning, the process of consideration, of contemplation, of conversation, inquiry, understanding, all of these are extremely important to me. And I think that at base, they're probably important to anyone listening to this, this podcast, and they're pretty much cornerstone notions. They're good and important ideas that we hold close to our, more or less our entire definition of what humanity is as a whole, right? And yet, here I am saying that it's Mill and his insistence on reason that points us directly toward genocide. So that's our second very problematic paradox. So if a commitment to reason means aligning ourselves with Mill and risking what happened the last time we bound these ideas of reason and freedom too tightly together, well, where exactly does that leave us? Of course, the answer is quite simple, but if you take the time to really let it sink in, it's also unsettlingly broad and impactful. The answer is not that we give up on the idea of reason generally as being part of the equation of freedom. The answer is also, obviously, not that we give up on some peoples as being somehow incapable of reason and thus not privy to freedom in the same way that we are. The answer is to divest ourselves of the chauvinism that has for so long accompanied our European notions of reason. Put simply, we need to get rid of the idea that somehow this, these European modes of rationality, that those are the only ways of having and expressing reason, that they're the only way that you can conduct yourself in this way, they're the only way you can properly conduct processes of inquiry and understanding, and that they are the only way you can lead yourself to fundamentally being free. The trick, and I'll say, let's write this on the chalkboard as many times as is required to really internalize it. The trick is to separate our commitment to reason from our chauvinism toward our way of reasoning against every other. Now, coming out of this European tradition, we learn a kind of reason that values the objective, that values the purely logical, that values the absolute. And those presumptions of reason have suffused all of our thinking about reason, about what reason is, about what it should be, about what its highest potential should be. But as we will see, this is by no means the only way to use our faculty of inquiry and understanding. Quite possibly, it isn't even the best way, or even a very realistic way to use it. But again, we're going to talk about all of that a few shows down the road. One thing to note about our way of reasoning is that you very much see this notion of chauvinism kind of baked into it. Our way of reasoning reiterates this idea that this is the only way to do this in a way that I think many other approaches to reason tend not to do. So our European notion of this says, this is the way, this is the one true path. If you step off of this path, if you're conducting reason, inquiry, and understanding in different ways, then you are not doing it correctly. There is only one way. That idea, that mistake, that dangerous mistake, is baked right into what I would call our European notions of reason and the worldview that we've built up around them. So again, our task in all of this is to maintain a commitment to reason, to continue to say that, yes, you must be capable of reason to be meaningful, meaningfully free, while at the same time admitting that reason may take on many different forms, far more different forms than most of us are accustomed, accustomed to imagining. And we further must recognize that reason itself demands that we understand that fact. So put this differently one more time, and I'm sorry to, to, to reiterate, but it's a really important point and we're going to be spending a lot of time on it. So again, to state this a little bit differently, 
Rather than entering into the chauvinistic zero-sum game that assumes that European rationality is the one and only path toward more perfect understanding, and thus that the extent to which our thinking differs from that basic model and all of its trappings and method, that any difference between your way of thinking and European rationality must therefore be a weakness of your way of thinking that can be corrected by whatever means, instead of saying all of that, we can simply assume that both the settled and indigenous or native peoples that Europe encountered through the course of imperialism, they had equal claims to rationality, even if the way they practiced and expressed it was markedly different than the way the Europeans were accustomed to practicing and expressing reason. It was only the fact that this European notion of rationality, this European mode of rationality, insisted on its sole claim to being the correct way to conduct rationality. It was only because of that chauvinism that the mistake was made to assume, the mistake, again, that Mill's making here, was made to assume that Europeans were operating on one higher level and all these other folks were operating on a fundamentally lower level and that they thus required the necessary despotism that, that Mill talks about to help raise them up, quote unquote, to our better European mode of rationality. Now, you'd be forgiven for shaking your head at the idea that I've been talking all this time to come up with the philosophical equivalent of, can't we all just get along? In essence, a, a truism, of course. Not wrong, so much as so general and obvious as to be disqualified from any possibility of usefulness or significance. Well, if that's what you're saying, I certainly hear you. And I'll just ask that we hold our horses a bit on that particular judgment as we prep up to dive into what I think will be a pretty interesting series of shows where we'll be focusing solely on this question of what exactly our so-called rational chauvinism has meant thus far, meaning exactly what impact it's had on the world and the very faintest beginnings of what, what an alternative might look like. I believe we'll find that it's a very easy thing to say that, of course, we should not reject other forms of reason and inquiry as being inherently inferior to our own. That's a, you know, we're pretty well attuned at this point in time to recognize that that's a true statement. It's quite another, however, to understand how wide-ranging and disruptive that idea is to really our, our entire worldview. And by the way, when I say our in this case, when I say we in this case, I mean the worldview of those of us who are sort of the intellectual descendants of this European tradition, of which I, I most certainly am one of those. But as I am frequently called upon to say, please know that we will most assuredly be coming back to that. Now, if we pan out for just a moment and think about what we've discussed here in terms of the discussion we've been having throughout this series, this is an, another example, perhaps a far more extreme example, of instances where we presume a lesser level of rationality in other people and thus radically change how they will be treated in society. In this instance, of course, we're overtaking whole societies. We're forcing those societies to essentially work against themselves in this regard, saying that everything that had previously been a successful, rational way of interacting with each other and, and with civil society, that now, that now that's all unsuccessful. That's now irrational not only not really free, uh, but just entirely unjustifiable. That's essentially what the act of imperialism is, is to replace a civil society that had worked with one that, that now says, no, these, these ways of thinking, these ways of doing business, these ways of operating are no longer successful. Now, if we like, we can push this idea a bit further as we try to understand how this chauvinism toward our own style of reason has really skewed the historical European understanding and treatment of the rest of the world. Here's a little thought experiment, and this, and this is hearkening back to an idea we touched on last week. What if you are assumed to be incapable of sensible choice-making of any kind, any kind whatsoever? We just say, you, Bill, you are no longer capable of making rational choices. 
Let's use an extreme example. The old movie trope of waking up in an insane asylum. And, and, and you'll recall, as we start to talk about this, about there essentially being three ways to discuss mental health. Well, and those three ways are, first of all, we can actually talk rationally and sensibly about what mental health is, uh, how we support folks who experience challenges related to mental health. We can have that conversation. That's a, a good rational conversation to have. Second conversation we can have is about our history of treatment of mental health related issues, which is very often a series of problems that we've caused and horrors that we've committed in the name of essentially not understanding what the, the fundamental nature of mental health is all about. Then there's this third way, this completely irrational, silly way. When we look at these tropes in movies and in stories and suspense and horror films and all this goofy stuff, where we really dive into the most, uh, how shall I say this? the most absurd, most unrealistic ways that we can talk about mental health. And we'll recall, when we're talking this way, we're not actually talking about mental health at all. We're not learning anything. We're not really reflecting on mental health. What we're doing is talking a lot about how we as a society tend to respond to mental health issues, particularly when given the, the license of diving off into fiction and movies and all the rest of it. But that caveat out of the way to our thought experiment. We're in an old time suspense movie. It's black and white. There's lightning crackling around the Gothic architecture of an old asylum. Our main character wakes up in, in this asylum, this insane asylum with no memory of who they are or how they got there. In this situation, the quote unquote patient's perspective, their choices, their reasons for wanting to make those choices, their what they say, what they want to do, all of that means almost nothing. Their perceived capacity for reasoning has been wholly removed from them by the presumptions of the people around them. Now that, to me, is the most extreme example of what we mean when we talk about this kind of rational chauvinism. So extreme that, of course, it is just a movie trope. Although, sadly, I imagine that if we look back in our history, we could find more than a couple instances of things like this really happening, but again, that's a discussion for another day. Now, with apologies, and this is already turning into a much longer episode than I'd planned, which is really funny because I had, when I first recorded it, I was, I was a little worried it wasn't going to be quite long enough, and I realized it, it didn't make sense, so I had to go back in and kind of redo a lot of it, and as a consequence, I actually took a bunch of stuff out, and after I took a bunch of stuff out, I am now recording the episode, and I, it's clearly going to be much longer than my normal episodes are. But, you know, so be it. That, uh, With that having been said, let's dive into yet another little side street here that's, that we don't really need to continue the primary conversation, but I think is fun nonetheless. When we think about these movie tropes of psychiatric wards, again, aside from the most stereotypical, you know, you, uh, you wake up, you have no ID, uh, you have no memory, and everyone says you're insane, blah, blah, blah. Aside from those most stereotypical, most extreme, there are kind of two storylines, two, two thematic storylines that, that, I, that I see quite a bit that start with this asylum premise, but take it in a slightly different direction. And both of them, I think, are instructive to us here. We could call the first direction uh, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari direction, or, you know, if Dennis Lehane or Martin Scorsese are listening, since I, obviously neither one of you apparently ever saw the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, we, we'll call it the Shutter Island direction. The second direction we could go is the one flew over the cuckoo's nest direction. So in our Dr. Caligari Shutter Island example, and by the by, this is outside the norm for us, so I suppose I should say, there are some spoilers coming up here, obviously a freedom of ideas. We're not normally about theatric criticism in here, but you know, a anyway, so some spoilers here if you are really looking forward to the, the surprise elements of these movies. In the Caligari Shutter Island example, the trope we use is altered because we're following the story through the eyes of a character who at first, actually for the, the bulk of the movie, we take this character to be in complete control the sort of epitome of, of, of a, rational, uh, a rational agent, but who, as it turns out, this person that we've been following all this time is actually, quote-unquote, insane, 
and is having a kind of complex delusion throughout the course of the film. So we're given this kind of gut-wrenching sensation of suddenly going from being, you know, in the Shutter Island example, or a detective, this person's tracking down leads, and they're the, the sort of height of rationality in a, you know, again, movie trope sort of sense. They go from that to suddenly becoming this person who we do not believe has a rational perspective at all. Suddenly, all at once, we as the viewer are put in a position of realizing that everything that we've taken to be true so far in this story is in fact madness, is in fact delusion. And so there we are, suddenly thrust onto the outside of rational society, looking back in. Now, the cuckoo's nest direction is, is a little different, but it's, it's, I, I would almost say it's the inverse. Through the eyes of the main character, of course, in the film played by Jack Nicholson, just brilliantly, we again follow a character who we identify with, we identify this character more than we do with, you know, his fellow inmates, quote unquote, inmates in the asylum, or certainly with the ostensibly sane and caring, quote unquote, sane and caring staff of the asylum, Nurse Ratchet and all the rest of it. So because, and, and I'm kind of stretching this a little bit here, I, I recognize that, but just, just playing with these ideas a bit. Because of the empathy of the Nicholson character, and by empathy, I mean the, the willingness of that character to simply accept the other folks in the asylum as being rational, self-directed folks who they're doing, they are people, they're doing what they're going to do. He accepts them as equals. He does not make that assumption of, ah, I see you, you folks do not have the rational capacity I do, therefore I'm going to look down on you in much the way, of course, the, the hospital staff tend to do. So because of his empathy, because of his willingness to, from the start, accept everyone as being fundamentally on the same rational footing as him, we begin to see, we are sort of carried into that mindset of being able to understand all of the characters on a human level, rather than through the typical lens that we use of this rational chauvinism of saying, ah, I see, these folks are just a little bit further down the scale of acceptable rationality than, than I would be or than my peers would be. So as I say, kind of farcical examples, but just some, some ideas that I do, enjoy, uh, I do enjoy playing with, particularly as these are, you know, again, we're talking about movies. We're not talking about the real dynamics of mental health issues. So just playing with that idea a bit. But let's go back. Let's take another view of this same question, the, the, the question we've been considering. What does it look like when the presumption of rational capacity is removed from a person or from a people by the systems of civil society that surround them? Now, we can turn right back to our discussion on imperialism to do this, as Arendt details in some of the, the, the basic mechanisms by which imperialist rule was carried out over subject peoples. Now, this is not, we're not really talking so much on an individual level as on a societal level, and we're reflecting on I guess you'd almost say a style of governance as it is embodied by these imperialist uh, bureaucracies. First, Arendt points out that imperialism becomes a form of government that must, of necessity, be hidden from the people. It's essential that the, the people being ruled by imperialist bureaucracies and governments, that they can't see how this government works. Because, of course, overlordship by a foreign people who not only do not participate in your way of life, but who are actively seeking to replace it. Of course, this is a fatally absurd and untenable way to govern. So the activity of this kind of government's governance must of necessity be kept separate from the people who are being governed. Second, she notes, the occupiers in most every level of imperial government take on a kind of aloofness. And of course, this is related to, to the first point, but this is more on a personal level. All the folks participating in, in this imperial governance take on what she calls a sort of aloofness. Again, an essential disconnection from the people, a need to keep both the people and oneself at, at least at arm's length, to stay hidden in the contradictions of, of colonial rule. Finally, the necessary lie must crop up, and this is just as true under Nurse Ratchet as it is under an imperial government in an imperial territory. We're doing all of this for your own good. That's the fundamental lie that all of this is based on. We're doing this for your own good. As such, the people are denied even the dignity 
of being told that they are essentially being enslaved by the form of government governance, by the form of civil society that is happening around them and to them. Now, the theme that runs through all of this, of course, is rule by a government that is both so absurd, so antithetical to proper governance, that it seeks to exercise control as invisibly as possible. As if, and I don't mean to read in here, but but as you read Arendt's work, I, I don't think that this is an unlikely conclusion to draw from what she's saying. It's as if the entire situation is so bizarrely shameful that government and the people who commit that government, the bureaucrats who are operating that government, must remain hidden from the people, and the people must remain hidden from the government. Because, of course, if you wish to remain convinced of another's inhumanity, of the insufficiency of their rational capacity, their insufficiency of their, their understanding of the world, it is essential to keep them at a distance. It's very hard to really get to know a person or a people and to maintain the fiction that they are somehow inhuman. And, of course, to maintain that posture of inhumanity yourself. You can't be the Jack Nicholson character. You can't let yourself create bonds or imagine people as your peers. You have to maintain a wall of disconnection and self-fulfilling misunderstanding. Add to all of this the necessity of keeping the facts of colonial life largely a secret from the home country, and one imagines the most utterly isolated and disconnected form of rule that history may, may have ever seen. And of course, by the way, it's necessary to keep the realities of colonial rule hidden from the home country, lest anyone back home begin to see what, was, what it was they were actually supporting with their money, their sons, their military, their flag, their national identity, and all the rest of it. You assume, and I don't know this for a fact, you assume that if someone like Mill really understood the horrors that were at work in these places, you assume he might have changed his tune or at least begun to think differently about this notion of imperialism. Again, I am purely speculating with that, and none of that changes the fact that the, the mistake he made was fundamental. The mistake in imagining that you can and should be running around trying to improve other peoples to make them more like you, that's the mistake. That's the horrific mistake. But you'd think that if he could see tangibly how horrific it was, maybe it would have changed his way of thinking. But again, that's pure speculation and probably not worth continuing on. Now, all of this, to me, leads us back to one last question. At least one last question for today. What exactly was it that colonizing empires thought they were teaching, quote-unquote teaching, to the people they colonized? And here, uh, of course, is where we come back to the themes we've been discussing all along. At its base, what was being taught, quote-unquote taught, through the process of imperialism was a style of rationality. It was a way of thinking. It was a way of inquiring and understanding. It was a worldview that was distinctly European, or at least that's what was attempting to be conveyed in some vague and totally uh, misshapen kind of way. Thus, in essence, not only were European states murdering, raping, and pillaging in the territories and countries they occupied, they were trying in the most fundamental way to change the way people's minds operated in those colonies. And as I keep saying, we're going to spend a lot more time on that, a lot more time on that. But for now, let's talk about exactly what those differences meant and what they looked like and what it meant to, to try and eliminate the differences between these, the colonizers and the colonized in these situations. So first take a very easy one. It's fairly common for us to look at a different different cultural customs and trappings and, and say that those differences must be differences not only of kind, but of quality. Now, again, we hope that we're getting past that as a people and as a society, but statistically speaking, you look at our history, one of the most common things, and the, the, I, now I'm talking about the history of all peoples everywhere all the time. When you look back at how we regard differences in culture, we tend to assume those differences aren't just differences, they are differences in the quality of the two cultures. 
that the style of your culture, if it's different from mine, if it's unfamiliar, unfamiliar to me, must point to your ultimately having no culture, or at least one that is not equal to my own. I think we can safely say that when the English first landed in India, for example, that their judgment that what they encountered was a quote-unquote society and its knowledge, as, as Mill would say, if they even bothered to make that justification at the, in the first place, that, that the, the judgment they made saying that this was a society and its knowledge, a society that was less mature, less rational, that wasn't based on some kind of rigorous evaluation of the quality of the civilizations they were encountering. They only saw that it was different. They didn't know that it was better or worse. They only saw that it was different. And of course, if your worldview is built around the notion of there being one single ultimate path toward what is right, one way to think, one way to reason, one way to live and to worship and to learn to value other people, then when everything in a society seems so different, then that society must also be just as wrong as it is different. That, again, is our rational chauvinism in a nutshell. Now, as an aside, I was curious on a couple of the sort of finer points of all this, so I did a bit of internet searching, which, of course, that didn't answer any of my questions that I had, but it led me to an article in the India Times about the English invasion of India. I thought an introduction to an article on the subject was instructive to our question about the presumed rationality of other peoples and how we make assumptions about who is more or less rational and how that then impacts how we treat them. Quote, the British landed in India in Surat on April 24th of 1608. While India has a rich and recorded history going back 4,000 years to the Indus Valley civilization in Harappa and Mohenjo-daro, Britain has no indigenous written language until the 9th century, almost 3,000 years after India. Unquote. Well, you know, if we go by this, it certainly sounds as though nonage is in the eye of the beholder. Is it safe to say that? I surely digress. To continue on our line of thinking, the next question that we have to begin to tackle is to ask ourselves what reason actually is. What is it to us as a people? What is it to us as individuals? Now, we are in no way equipped to wrestle with this question just yet, aside from saying that clearly, we have a historical misunderstanding of what it is, and that that historical misunderstanding has at least been complicit in some of the great horrors in the history of mankind. But what we can say right now is we can at least say that there is no single way to comport oneself as a rational thinking creature, right? That's been the mistake all along, to assume that there was only one way. This happens in a wide array of fashions and in a wide array of means. To talk more about it, we are going to have to hold off a little bit, but here we say it again, we are going to come back to that. But remember, and I know I've made this point a few times, but I feel like I need to make it just one more time before we close out. Remember that as we talk about saying there's no one single way to proceed with rationality, no one right way to do this, for Mill, and for most of the European thinkers of his day, and for the, uh, many of the folks who preceded them and followed them. Really, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the majority of European philosophy up to the 19th century, as we've discussed, worked from the assumption that reason works in a single, fairly narrow, and clearly defined way. For these thinkers, there is only really one way to be rational. And if the way you practice the capacity for rationality is different than the way I practice it, if it appears different, if it sounds different, even if perhaps you just look different enough while you're doing it, then chances are I'm going to be inclined to dismiss you as not being capable of reason at all. But as we said, right, if we remove reason from our standard equation of, of, of how we define freedom, it's very hard to have a meaningful notion of responsibility and therefore almost impossible to have a meaningful notion of freedom by our standard terms. But clearly our thinking has gone drastically awry in the way we're defining reason in that definition. And thus it leads us to, or it has led us in the past to feeling justified in violently assuming overlordship of foreign people in the name of promoting freedom. 
And on that note, we will call it a podcast. Now, next time, we're going to throttle back just a bit from the intensity of these last few episodes. We're also going to head back in time just a little bit, and we're going to look at the work of John Locke. It's in Locke, writing two centuries earlier, that I think we'll begin to see the beginnings of a trend that culminates in the thinking of folks like Mill. If we have been on what Mill and many others perceived as a trend toward near-perfect reasoning, so perfect that we needed to start spreading it all over the globe at gunpoint and at sword point, how did that process of moving in that direction begin? How did that trend start? Locke, in a way, even though he's not really, this is not where it begins by any stretch of the imagination, but Locke is where we're going to start the trend line moving in that direction. In a way, he will be our origin story. You know, so as, as a consequence of that, of course, I, I haven't invited Joaquin Phoenix over to be our presenter. You know, I mean, he's, he's awesome when it comes to, to origin stories. Christian Bale also, you know, Ben Affleck, anybody, you know, sent out a lot of invitations. We'll admit it's been a little trouble finding a, a sort of rate that, that will work within our budget. So I make no guarantees. You, you might just be stuck with me as always next week, but I promise as always, I, I will, I will do my very best for you. So. With that, uh, that meaningless little frippery to the side, thank you so very much for joining me today. Thank you for hanging in for a somewhat longer episode, and I will see you next week, and I am looking forward to it.